Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On December 1st, the court will hear argument in Dobbs against Jackson Women's Health Organization. The court could use Dobbs, which involves Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, to formally overrule Roe v. Wade. Of course, we're still waiting on a ruling in the Texas case involving a six-week ban, where the court has effectively overruled Roe, at least for now. We're going to bring on a couple guests who have a book out on the abortion issue, one of whom argued Planned Parenthood against Casey, which gave us the undue burden standard. First, Kimberly, help us set up what the Dobbs case is about. Sure. So Dobbs is this case that I feel like we've been talking about without um, actually talking about it. It's been, Mm -hmm. as you said, kind of lurking in the background as uh, the court kind of worked its way through um, SB 8, that Texas law you mentioned. Um, But, you know, the SB 8 case really focuses on the procedures that Texas used to enact that law. And this case, Dobbs really gets at the heart of abortion rights and, you know, the future of those abortion rights. So uh, the Mississippi law here was passed in 2018 and is one of many state laws that have been enacted specifically to challenge Roe versus Wade and to bring a case like this up to the Supreme Court. Uh, The difference between this and the Texas case, though, is that the lower courts here said that the the state could not enforce the law while the litigation goes on, while, of course, in Texas, SB 8 has been in effect for two and a half months. The law here specifically prohibits abortions, as you just said, uh, after 15 weeks, which, um, as the lower courts found, was contrary to that viability line that the Supreme Court set in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and that's somewhere around 23 to 24 weeks. Now, interestingly, when the state initially filed its um, petition and brought the case to the Supreme Court, it wasn't asking the justices to overrule Roe or Casey outright. They went um, to lengths to say, you know, the the questions they were asking the justices did not require them to overrule um, those precedents. But I think the game plan has changed. Now we really see the state and it's Amici coming out and saying, you know, that there are all these reasons why um, stare decisis shouldn't come into play here. um, And they really, you know, go at Roe and Casey. So no longer the case that they're really trying to make a play for this sort of like middle ground. Although, you know, who knows what the Supreme Court's going to come up with. Well, to talk about that, let's go to our guests. Catherine Colbert and Julie Kay are the authors of Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom. Catherine co-founded the Center for Reproductive Rights and argued the landmark Casey case. Ms. Colbert. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Julie began her career at the Center for Reproductive Rights and then helped lay the groundwork for legalizing abortion in Ireland. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Catherine, in reading the book and your account of preparing to argue Casey, I'm reminded that we've been here before, in a sense, on the precipice of thinking Roe would be overruled. For people who might not be familiar with this history, can you talk a bit about what your expectations were like heading into that argument in the early 1990s? Sure. Um, Thanks. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, In the fall of 1991, Uh, Many of your listeners will remember that Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment, and he won a close vote in the Senate and uh, ascended to the Supreme Court. Within about uh, two days of his ascension to the court, the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit issued its opinion in the Casey case, and it essentially found that uh, Roe versus Wade was no longer the law 
but uh, the court suggested a new uh, intermediate standard of review, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But the, the basic news at that time, what we all believed when Casey went to the Supreme Court, was that there were five votes to overrule Roe. Uh, I learned almost everything I needed to know about arguing in the Supreme Court on Sesame Street. That is, you got to learn to count. And the only number that mattered is five. Uh, and at the time, we fully and completely believed that there were five votes uh, to overrule Roe. The uh, surprising thing about Planned Parenthood versus Casey is that did not happen. Right uh, following my oral argument uh, within uh, the court meets in its conference room. And we have since learned that there were seven votes to uphold the Pennsylvania restrictions. Uh, and uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist assigned the opinion to himself and wrote a draft opinion that did overrule Roe. Uh, it was um, never filed by the court because uh, Justice Kennedy switched his vote at the last minute uh, and joined with uh, Justices O'Connor and Souter to adopt the hallmarks of Roe. Uh, and uh, permit abortion up to viability, but then it also gave states greater latitude to restrict abortion. So it was a uh, was a compromise opinion, uh, but a surprise at the time. And you know, I was um, reviewing the briefs for this case, and it struck me that the kind of way that the game plan has seemed to change on the part of the state. You know, when they or originally brought the suit to the Supreme Court, it was a much different Supreme Court, I think. And you could really see them. I think they come out in their brief and say, "You don't have to overturn Roe and Casey um, in their petition." Now it seems like the state and their amici are very much on a different. Um, game plan. Is there a way for the court to come out with another kind of compromised ruling in this Dobbs case in the way that it did in Casey? No, uh, for two reasons. One is there's no Justice Kennedy on this current court uh, to change their mind. Uh, this court is much more ideological, much more uh, conservative and uh, unwilling to bend. We've already seen them uh, vote to allow the Texas law go into effect I don't see any change in that. But let me remind you that in Casey, the, the Solicitor General, the U.S. Justice Department, did come in and specifically ask the court to overrule Roe. So we've been there before. And one thing I'm wondering, uh, whoever wants to to answer this, you know, we have this Texas case that was argued earlier this term, and we're waiting for a decision on it. The court effectively overruled Roe in Texas, at least for the time being, in terms of letting the six-week abortion ban go into effect. Wondering how the outcome of that case could play into what we're waiting to happen for in the Dobbs case that's about to be argued, how the two cases might interact with one another and what that'll mean for the future of abortion rights and abortion litigation. And Julie, what do you think? You know, I think of the Texas case as the toddler that bursts into the room and has a tantrum and gets everybody's attention, when in reality, it's the Mississippi case that's the biggest threat to abortion rights. Um, the Texas case has created a very urgent and um, threatening situation for women in Texas and has really shown that this court is willing to disregard what happens to women's health and lives when they do allow abortion to be nearly banned in the state. Um, but that case has really been on procedural grounds so far. 
Um, and I think it's ultimately the Mississippi ban that poses the biggest threat to existing law and protections for reproductive freedoms. So just to get in a little bit to the nitty gritty of the case here, you know, this law um, in Mississippi bans abortion after 15 weeks and the only abortion clinic in the state only does abortions up to 16 weeks. So we're already kind of um, not at this viability line. Um, But I guess what does a ruling in Mississippi's favor mean in other places um, kind of across the country, both in red states and blue states? What's the effect going to be outside of Mississippi? So uh, let me try to answer that, which is there's there's really two parts of this. One is what it means for the continuation of Roe and Casey as the legal standard, as the law of the land. There is no way to uphold a 15-week ban abortion without striking at the heart of both those cases, because in each instance, uh, the court had held that abortion should be permitted up to viability. If you let the or the Mississippi law take effect, it's a ban prior to viability. Uh, After that, we will see a great number of states begin to enact or try to implement their own bans. uh, And even in the, the best of possible worlds, we will see many of those laws take effect. I think that upholding this ban also sends a strong signal about further stigmatizing and criminalizing abortion. And what we've seen in Mississippi even prior to this ban and what we see nationwide is that when access to abortion is limited by these restrictions that have been permitted post-Casey and even a bit before Casey, but is that it's women on the margins who are affected the most and the most harshly. So it's teens, it's women in rural states, it's women in poverty, and it's disproportionately women of color. And so we've seen this race inequity and gender inequity being perpetuated already, and we can expect more of that. Right. I think that's important to kind of um, keep our eyes on, you know, what it means uh, for people on the ground. But also we are a legal podcast. So um, kind of wanted to poke a little bit at this idea, um, Catherine, that you said that the result is going to be if they strike down kind of the heart of what's at Roe and Casey, that the result is going to be that courts are going to uphold many restrictions um, that states might put on abortion in the future. Can you just explain why that is kind of getting into this idea of um, different levels of scrutiny? Sure. So uh, for all the lawyers out there, uh, you will remember that Roe created the most protective or the gave the uh, women the highest level of constitutional protection. That is uh strict scrutiny. Um, And Casey reduced that so long as they didn't impose what the court called an undue burden. And as we've described under the undue burden test, some but not all regulations would take effect. The only way to uphold the the, uh, Mississippi ban is to say that the the least protective standard of review or what's known as a rational basis test controls. That's what Uh, Justice Rehnquist had argued uh, in his opinion overturning uh, Roe, and that's what we expect the court to do should they uphold the Mississippi law. And that means that any legislature can pass any restriction they want, including total bans on abortion before viability, uh, so long as there's a rational reason to do so. And as Justice Rehnquist noted, uh, protection of fetal life is a rational reason. Uh, therefore, 
women have no, essentially no federal constitutional right to choose abortion or to make decisions involving their pregnancy. And not only will abortion uh, be hamstrung, uh, a whole range of other reproductive health care will be affected. And, and just to emphasize that the Supreme Court provides the floor, not the ceiling. So states will then have the power to enact bans on abortion or also can increase the level of protection for abortion rights, as some already have by passing omnibus rules and sort of codification of Roe at the state level. But we expect that at least half the states will immediately move to criminalize abortion, to ban abortion. Um, and some of them already have these so-called trigger laws on the books that go into effect, you know, the second the Supreme Court kind of erases the floor of Roe. Right. And let me just be clear here. We're talking, uh, this is not evenly spread around the country, that it is likely that bans will be more prevalent in the South and in the mountain states. So there may be a landmass from Georgia all the way west to Texas, to West Texas, uh, and north from North Dakota all the way south to uh, Arizona, uh, where abortion will be uh, totally unavailable. And that means that women have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, to obtain, to obtain uh, necessary health care. Julie, one thing I wanted to ask you about, since you've done work on the international front of this litigation, I was tuning in yesterday to a panel of the Heritage Foundation, obviously a conservative group on the other side of you all of this litigation and this issue. They mentioned how the United States is an outlier when it comes to abortion as far as its permissiveness being more permissive than other other countries throughout the world. I'm wondering just if you have anything to say about that in any context you can give to it, given your international experience. Well, first of all, I would say that that's not accurate, that the U.S. is absolutely not an outlier, particularly among sort of like-minded industrialized countries. Um, In fact, we're an outlier in that we are um, just embarrassingly bad at providing any kind of paid leave, as we've seen play out uh, more recently at the federal level. And furthermore, you know, countries where they have abortion available for the first trimester, um, France, Ireland, other places, um, two things are happening there. First of all, abortion is paid for by the government health care plan, and they try to remove barriers to abortion services. They don't put these waiting periods in, they don't put in these unnecessary clinic regulations or hospital admitting privileges, Um, they have better access to medication abortion. So the idea, rather than putting up roadblocks that delay women and people seeking abortions to going later in pregnancy, they facilitate access early on when it's easier and medically safer. Um, The second part of that would be that the global trend is towards liberalization. Um, I obviously uh, worked on that a lot and saw that happening in Ireland, but we're seeing a lot more demands worldwide, especially from these so-called Catholic countries like Argentina, Poland, other places, Mexico most recently, um, where there is uh, outcry and, and mass movements towards greater access to abortion. Because what happens in in other countries, in in other parts of the world, is when abortion is made illegal, it doesn't go away, it goes underground. 
So in some of the countries in Western Europe in particular where abortion is illegal or, or prohibited after the first trimester, women travel and they travel to nearby countries the same way we do in the U.S., that there's this abortion migration out of Texas now that's going to Oklahoma, that's going to New Mexico, and that's going underground. So I think we really need to look at the facts of you know, how this works in practice and not just kind of the politicization and weaponization of healthcare in the state legislatures and, and in some of these debates. Well, thanks for that context. Appreciate it. Wondering maybe we can end off by bringing it back uh, to the domestic frontier and ask, just as we're heading into the Dobbs argument, obviously we all think that the state is going to win in some fashion. It might depend on what the exact wording of the opinion is going to be. I'm wondering, is there anything that either of you are going to be looking out for, should say listening into during the argument that might give you a sense of where the court is going to end up here? Well, short of a complete reversal by either Justices Kavanaugh or Barrett, which I do not expect, I don't think they're going to give us much of a uh, read on where they plan to vote. It's just too controversial. Uh, it's not likely to happen. And I think the, the thing I'm going to be watching for the most uh, in uh, the opinion uh, is uh, the effect of the opinion. What's the legal standard? Because I fully expect that they will never say the magic words, we reverse Roe and Casey. Uh, they don't want to do that. But they will, uh, once they adopt a standard that's less protective than Casey, it, it is effectively an overruling of Roe uh, and Casey and will mean uh, dramatic changes for women uh, across the country. Uh, so that's what I'm going to look for, and that's what I, um, uh, it seems to me is likely to happen. I'm interested to hear the argument, but I'm not kidding myself that this is going to end up well for abortion rights in this country. It's, um, you know, as we've said, the the court, the votes just are not there on the court. And so I'm as well going to listen for you know, if there are any hints about them going back to the rational basis standard as a lawyer and one who cares very strongly about these rights, I'm going to be having a lot of conversations about what that looks like so that we don't get hoodwinked when the opinion comes out in June. And I'm going to be talking to people about really talking about this as a human rights issue and what's at stake here for us individually as women, as allies of women, as people who need health care services, because we don't need to sit and wait for this court to come out with a bad opinion that we need to get active now. And we really need to demand that um, our legislatures do better. Well, those are definitely two decisions we'll be watching for. Thanks again, Catherine and Julie, for coming on and talking about this with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, I think it's really interesting, um, as you mentioned, Jordan, this kind of like sense of doom that was looming in the air before Casey. Seems like that's very much um, what is here now, but there doesn't seem like there's going to be that, you know, kind of saving, saving reading of what came out of Casey. Right. It's a different court this time around. But as we always say, we'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, I think we would follow your advice and wait and see. And until next time, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hopefully you can't hear my children in the background. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. 
My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.